Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. It's good to be back with you, and I, uh, and I want to just start by saying a huge thank you for um, the blessings you've already showered on us as a family. I'm so thankful that Catherine and the kids are finally here too. We're more settled this week than last. We expect that next week we'll be even more settled. But for all of you who've already showered on us um, so much for the, for the freezer that we're just still trying to find a place for, uh, to all of you who came over on um, Tuesday, Wednesday to, to help us move things, I'm saying to somebody the other day, it was quite an introduction, especially to you ladies of the congregation, for those who helped that uh, you were sorting out our underwear drawers, but um, it was, I'm, I'm thankful for that. In, in some strange way, <clears throat> because in, in, in a way, it's, like, it's a taste of Eden, right? It's a taste of what it was and what it will be, um, just a taste in part, but a taste nonetheless, and uh, that's fitting on these days, um, these first couple Sundays as we're looking at Eden, at what it was um, before it was lost, and now what we'll look at today at what it will be when God makes it again. We're very much looking forward to knowing Eden even more in the days ahead because really that's what we are, right? Our lives, if Christ has come into our lives, are we're little Edens. We're walking around as those who God has come in and begun to touch every corner and even more so together. Looking forward to when he will do that to an even greater degree. Well, let me just mention a few announcements um, for the coming days. I know we're here two weeks later than we expected, and we're just getting our feet under us, and there have been questions about the days ahead that have not been answered until yet, so let me just give you a brief overview of, of what's ahead. Next week, one of our missionaries, Todd Kelly, a, a friend of, of mine personally from College Church, uh, but one of our missionaries here at KBC will be coming to, to preach, we'll be celebrating communion next week. Um, then in the weeks following, we're going to jump into a series on the book of Ephesians that's simply going to be entitled Together. And we're going to look at what the gospel is and its significance for us as a body together. What has been done for us and what we do having that already done on our behalf together. So that's ahead um, our home groups are going to be starting up. Jeff will probably have more to say at the end of the service about that. Um, also, uh, uh, women's Bible study is coming. Um, uh, Carly and uh, Kirsty are putting that together. But I wanted to say, just on the front end of this season that we're about to jump into, that you may think, you may look, um, it may look on the surface that things are a little lighter in this season ahead, that we're not doing as much. We're not planning really classes, um, at least at this point, we're not planning on doing a, a, a ton in, in that regard, and there's a reason for that. And the reason has to do partly with you, with, you, with the um, process of introspection that we went through as a church before we were here, and all that came out of that. We're going to take some time in this next season to really devote ourselves to looking not at the present so much and perpetuating what we typically do, but looking to the future. And who we are as a church, our identity, and what we are doing in this community and for this community, and how we grow believers up into the faith and up in the faith. 
And to do that, it's going to take some, some time, some conversations, especially for us as elders, um, but conversations that I'm sure will go broader than that as we begin to, to ask, what is the next season of KBC going to look like? And what might God do among us? So don't worry if things look light. It's okay. It doesn't mean that everything's going to fall apart at the hinges. We're just taking some time to really think about what's coming. One of the things we're not going to stop doing, though, is going to God's Word. And so we get the privilege of going there again now, not to look at what Eden was before it was lost, but to look today at what it will look like when God makes it again. And we're going to be betting down in we're going to be betting down in Revelation chapter 21 and a little bit of chapter 22. These are, it's a big chapter, but this is where we're going to be for the day, um, looking at that other side of the Bible. If you remember last week, we looked at Eden as a land before time, as a land before judgment, a land before separation, a land before brokenness, a land before shame. Today, we're going to look at what it is on the other side of history, though, when God intervenes in a way that he hasn't yet, as he's patiently waiting for those to turn to his son. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to begin in verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. I didn't have my Bible today. There's always Bibles in the back, though. So if you want to turn to Revelation 21, Follow along as I read and see if you can picture in your mind what John, the one who wrote this book, what he was seeing when he was given a glimpse, while I believe was very much in his right mind, given a glimpse though into what God would do at the end of history. Picture it in your mind. We'll begin again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. This is God's word. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its great gates and, and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width the, and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear crystal. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth topaz, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth emerald, the, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord God, for a uh, a foretaste like this of that place that will stand forever in the midst of of a world that only seems to ever fall apart. For a foretaste like that, we cannot thank you enough. But as we ask when looking at the world's beginnings, so we ask now when we're about to look at its end, may we see what you want us to see. May this picture of our sometime tomorrow have the bearing you intend for it to have on our todays, even as we long for that tomorrow to come, when we will rest in your holy city, your holy of holies, your holy paradise. We pray with John, come Lord Jesus, amen. Well, you may be familiar with the old adage that the more heavenly-minded you become, the less earthly good you grow to be. It's old, it's known, but today I'd like to adopt, for the moment at least, I'd like to adopt a a perspective that was proposed by no less than Jesus and put into words by no less than that Oxford classicist that I dearly loved, C.S. Lewis. This is what he said. He said, if you read history, you'll actually find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. He says, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And I think it's right. I think it's true. I think with a perspective on what's coming, it changes how you live in the here and now. And so my prayer is that as we turn to think of that other world and look with John at what awaits those who, as he says, have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, my prayer is that we will, through that, find our effectiveness in this world renewed and recharged and refocused on all that we've been left here to do. And so, just as we looked at Eden of the past and found that it had very present implications, so my prayer today is that as we look at the Eden of the future, we would find as well that it has very present implications. And to do so, we're going to see with John that Eternity City is painted as three places that once were lost to the people of God. 
that will one day be regained. Three places. Eternity City is in fact a new Jerusalem, a new temple, and a new Eden. So first we'll look at the city as a new Jerusalem. But to understand the significance of this being a new Jerusalem, you have to first understand the significance of the old Jerusalem, right? It doesn't make sense to jump in without knowing the past. So after 400 years of slavery in a foreign land, I imagine that one of the most riveting aspects for God's people as they approached God's promised land was the prospect of living in God's presence. Can you imagine that, of wandering in the wilderness 400 years in a foreign land and looking forward to the land that God had promised you, but not just because it was another land, but because God promised as well to be there with you. I imagine that that was one of the most riveting aspects on their way to that land. And if you know the story, God had promised them just that, not just a place to to live but a a place where he would live with them. And in the land, the place that he would live would be Jerusalem, the capital city, what was called the city of the great king, which was a symbol of God's faithfulness to his people. Look to Jerusalem. But the permanence that God's people were offered in that land was eventually lost because God's people walked away from God. They walked away from God. They forgot that it was God who had brought them in and God who had built them up and God who had fought before them and God who had come behind them. And forgetting about God and what he had done for them, it was very easy then to go one step further and forget what they were supposed to do for God, to love him with their whole heart and to honor him with their whole lives. And so, because they lost their love for God, he wasn't a part of their lives anymore, so too they lost their right to God's land. And with the land, they lost Jerusalem. And with Jerusalem, they lost their connection to God, to God's presence. But as I mentioned last week, even in exile, when they were out of the land, even in exile, there began to run beneath the the surface of the prophetic streams a current that looked forward to the day when God would bring them back. When, when he would build Jerusalem again. And it's an expectation that was not satisfied even when they returned to the land. But it's an expectation that is eventually picked up as an explanation for the person and work of Jesus. For what he came to do on behalf of God's people. And it's ultimately picked up, this imagery of a replanting of that land, it's ultimately picked up here in our passage by John. 
It's picked up here and where the city is won back, not because of what God's people ever do, but because of what God does and has done in Jesus. So you have to pick up some of how John describes this city if you're going to if you're going to see it for what it is. He he sees in verse 1, he sees a new heaven and a a new earth. And in verse 2, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So that where for all of history, God had been up there. Now he, he comes down and the gap between heaven and earth are collapsed for the first time. Jerusalem comes down. The distinction between heaven and earth is done away with. The two become one. So that eternity city, in eternity city, God and his people dwell together as never known before in the history of humanity. Do you see it? There isn't even a distinction between the land anymore and its capital so that you have to say today we go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts or to sacrifice or to worship there's now not even a distinction between the capital and the land all of heaven come to earth is a new Jerusalem but it's not only a place It's not only a place. In verse 2 we see that it's also a people. It's a people because the city is prepared as a bride. It's the people of God prepared for the bridegroom. It's like home, right? What makes homesickness what it is? It's not just a place. It's a people. What makes home cooking what it is? It's not just the food, it's the fellowship. What makes a home coming what it is? It's not just coming back to what is laid desolate. Jerusalem would lay desolate for years. It stood without its people. But the new Jerusalem cannot even be described apart from the people who inhabit it. It's home. But it isn't just any old home. It's the home of God. Perfected by his presence. In verse 3 it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain. I mentioned last week what my mom used to say when I was growing up, that a home is not a home until you've touched every corner. We've started that this week, started to touch every corner, and some corners we found need touching. (laughs) But we're doing it. We're doing it. You know what, though? At the end of that journey, whenever we get this place settled, still going to need to be touched and fixed because it's still going to break and be broken. Here, though, is a place where God has touched every corner. 
There's no, there's no dusty closets. There's no radiators where you can't even get in the cracks to clean it. There's no grime on the, on the floors or you know, who knows what in the attic. But more than that, there's no brokenness in people's hearts. There's no sin in people's wills. This is a place perfected by the presence of God. Something that was never known before. Not even in the first Eden. It's perfected by His presence. Verses 5 to 8 make it clear. It's important for us to see this on the front end. Make it clear that not everyone will have this as their inheritance. Love wins in the end, but it doesn't win for everyone. It says right here that there will be those, yes, who persevere in the faith, who don't back down in the face of evil and don't denounce Jesus in the face of hardship and one day will be rewarded in the face of God. But there will also be those who end up denying Jesus. And rejecting Jesus. And while you can live life in any many sorts of ways, there's only two places to spend eternity. It's as simple as that. It's binary. Either the eternal city, or what's described, at least here in this passage, as an eternal fire. And it's not like a campfire that you cozy up around. You're in the fire. Or you're in the city. And it depends solely on the one you put your trust in. Faith lived out in faithfulness. It's a warning for everybody. If you haven't trusted in Christ as the only one who can make this world right again, Or make your little world right again. Today's the day. Kids, as you're growing up, you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to look at the world around you and the brokenness in the world around you and you're going to have to decide, do you think you can fix it yourself? And maybe you will, to begin with. And I hope someday the brokenness overwhelms you as it is meant to do. So that you see that you can't. Because what sense does it make too at the end of the day if in the brokenness you get rid of the one person who can do anything about it? Put your trust in Christ. If you've done that, look forward to what's coming. Look at what's ahead. Look at where those who have done just that will dwell forever. And if you've done it and have found yourself turning from it in any of the ways enumerated here in in verse 8, by cowardice or faithlessness or in hatred of others or taking your sexuality into your own hands or replacing God with anything, today is the day to turn back. You can live in any, many sorts of ways. There are only two places to spend eternity. 
eternal city will be a new Jerusalem. It will also be, though, a new temple. So when Jerusalem was the the capital of the land God promised to God's people, the temple was the place that God actually dwelt. It was the four walls that he dwelt within. And as much as the temple, though, was a symbol of God dwelling among God's people, you have to see that also, though, it symbolized the distance between us and him. As much as he's in our midst, he's always in there. We're always out here. But look, look at what one day will be. John sees on the horizon not only a day when God's people are brought back to the promised land, but brought where they were never before allowed to go. Where people who stumbled in by accident or frivolously were burned immediately, fire from heaven. And yet there's coming a day when God's people are invited to where they were never allowed before, into the very dwelling of God, brought to a mountain to watch the city descend. John sees the city in verse 11 shining with God's glory, just like a temple, just like the temple that was once known in history. And in verse 12, he sees that the gates of the city bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, three in each direction, so that the nations of the world are given access to God through the nation of Israel. And that makes sense if you think about the history of God's people, right? The nations are given access through the nation of Israel. They're the ones who usher in the Christ, usher in Jesus, the one who can make all things right again. But I want to point out something else that it's important to see that as much as the gates are inscribed with the 12 tribes of Israel, the names of the 12 tribes, it's important to see that these gates, and in fact the entire city, in verse 14, rests on the 12 foundations inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. So it's given access, the city, access is given into the city through the tribes of Israel, through the Jewish nation. That's the chosen people who, were, who, who ushered in the Messiah. But it's founded on the 12 apostles. And there's implications here for even how we read our Bibles. Oftentimes, I think, we who really care about this book end up flipping through it, but we find ourselves lost in places we don't understand. Right? Are you there? I get there. It's okay to be there. Yep. You find yourselves lost and not knowing what to do with it. And so you often, just like water running down a hill, you take the path of least resistance. You directly apply whatever you're reading to your life today in whatever way is easiest. And often we end up doing more so, applying it to the lives of others, holding them to a standard that we ourselves know we can't keep. Right? Do you do this? Well, there's something here that we need to see, right? Entrance in through the people of Israel, founded on the 12 apostles. So even that, the end game here, or what we see in Jesus himself and the stories of the cross, should become our interpretive grid for reading all of the Bible. You will be on surer footing 
If you want to avoid what even the religious leaders in Jesus' day and John's day were falling into of doing exactly that, directly applying the, the, the Old Testament particularly to their lives and making it, in a sense, all about what we do to get right with God. Instead of what Jesus says it's about, it's all about what God has done to get us right with him. If you want to begin to read the Bible better, see the significance of the apostles. They correct what all of the people of God had gotten wrong to that point, or at least the religious leaders, of reading this as a a book with a rather lengthy to-do list rather than a message, a story of what God has done on our behalf. Entrance in through the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, indeed, great. But founded on the 12 apostles so that when you're reading the Old Testament or even the New, because you can stumble in all the same ways, ask yourself every time, where is the gospel? Where is the gospel? Because if all you found is what we typically call law, you're not reading it the way it's meant to be read. Entrance in through the 12 tribes, founded on the apostles. Read it through the cross or even eternity city. Here we get to the temple, though. John goes on to describe how the city is laid out in verse 16 saying that it lies like a square, 12,000 stadia in length, which means that this is a city as big as the Roman Empire, from Jerusalem to Rome. 12,000 stadia, not an empire, but the city. 12,000 stadia, as big as the Roman Empire, which in John's day is what was standing in direct opposition to the kingdom of God because it demanded one's allegiance. Hail Caesar. Caesar is God. But here is a city that will trump all earthly powers, whether presidents who bear that name or parliaments, whether queens or countries. Here is a a city that as much as we may ever pledge our allegiance to a country, by God's grace, having been brought up in this place where we can worship freely, as much as we may pledge allegiance to a country, we must always remember that we pledge ourselves to a country that sits under God. And yet what I want to highlight more than just the city's massiveness. I want to highlight what John says next. Look at this. He says that its length and its width and its height are the same. Now, before taking a turn towards ministry, I was uh, headed into architecture. Love architecture. This is an odd city, with its height being equal to its length and width. Can you picture it? What does that even mean? 
a city with its height equal to its length and its width. It's bizarre, right? If you picture it, it's bizarre. Unless Eternity City is a replication, a reproduction of the only other cube in the Bible. Do you know where it is? The Holy of Holies. It's the only other one mentioned in the entire Bible. Eternity City is a reproduction of the innermost sanctum of God's dwelling place. And John goes on to say, I saw no temple. Because you're in the temple. And it's such that he can say, because the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. says it will be lit by the glory of God with the Lamb as its light and the glory that has mistakenly been given to the kings of this earth who are trying to make this world great again will be given back to the one who can truly do it, to Jesus. And as verse 25 says, its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night, no night in which evil roams, no night in which danger lurks, no night in which we're left to ourselves to go our own ways. If this is a picture, though, I want you to stop and think. If this is a picture, though, of where we're going or of where I hope we're going, if we've put our trust in in Jesus I wonder what areas of your life today would be vastly out of place if we were to find ourselves there tomorrow. By all accounts, this is a place characterized by God's people living under God's throne. You see it? That's what it is. That's what eternity city is. God's people living under God's throne. But for a a people headed there, It doesn't make sense if we've still got areas of our lives that we're reigning over down here. It's like this summer. We were headed to a family reunion on our long trek from Wheaton to Sycamore. We were headed to a family reunion. We're in Amsterdam, and the highlight of the family reunion, my family, my family's younger than Catherine's. Catherine's are much more sensible than mine. The highlight of my family reunion, though, is me and my two brothers beating the tar out of each other in the lake. And Emmett's old enough. He joins in now. And I knew that's where we're going. And all, all beginning of the summer, saying over and over again, Catholic, it's got to get in shape. I know it's coming. We've got to get in shape. We've got to be able to just at least stand up. It's coming. And instead, all summer long, in Amsterdam, was sneaking spoonfuls of Nutella out of the kitchen. So that by the time we got to camp, this reunion, it made for a very comic, if not tragic, picture of someone who was not living in light of where they were headed. So what's the area of your life? 
that would make for the most tragic scene where it unveiled in Eternity City. Is it honoring your parents? Honesty at work? Sexuality is a big one today. Because our culture says, it's telling us over and over that it's ours to do with what we want, to have as much as we want, whenever we want, in whatever way we want, with whomever we want. And when that doesn't satisfy, what does it tell you? Go try something different. But what it never tells you, and maybe because it doesn't know, is that that will never satisfy because you're going after what was only intended for to be a means. You're going after it as an end. And it will never do what you want it to do. God didn't wire it that way. What is it? What is it in life? Probably a big list. What's the top? Top of the list that comes to mind. And what I would say to you is acknowledging that here is what would look most ridiculous have it been were to be unveiled in, in heaven instead of trying to fix it, which is often how we go about it. Instead of trying to fix it, acknowledge it for what it is, then acknowledge that you can't fix it. And then stare at Jesus and ask the question, why am I going after this? And how is it that this will never satisfy? Am I convinced? If you're convinced that it's going to satisfy, you will continue to go after it. But if you see it for what it is, whether it's sex or anything else, finally it will fall into place beneath the throne of Jesus. So don't try and fix it. Stare at Jesus. Where Jerusalem and the temple, places God dwelt in the course of human history made by human hands, the final picture of this city in chapter 22, verse 1, is of that land before time, made not by human hands, but by God's own hands. It's of Eden, which we saw last week was a place defined by a river. Do you remember? Defined by a river that watered the whole earth. And here it is again, a river, this time flowing right down the main thoroughfare of the city, right from the throne of God. And in the midst of that city stands the tree of life, growing now on on either side of the river with its fruit available to every citizen, everyone there in 12,000 stadia of city. And its leaves are available for the healing of the nations that come through the gates of the tribes of Israel, founded on the apostles. Where curse had reigned all of our days, verse 3, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Perfected by His presence, verse 4 tells us, that we will then see His face. What no human has ever seen. Why? Because we will be enabled to see what we can't see now without being consumed by it. But there's coming 
the day. It says his servants will worship him. They will serve him. That's what worship means. They will serve him. And then according to verse 5, they will reign with him forever and ever. We will in some part participate in the great victory over evil. The restoration of Eden as princes and princesses of the kingdom of God ushered in, as it were, to a place that is at once promised land, place of worship, and paradise. That's what's coming. But just as we asked last week, what does a land before time have to do with our times today, so too we want to ask, what does a land after time have to do with today? And I think the answer comes in verse 8, just a few verses later. Verse 8 of this last chapter of the Bible, John says that when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Worship God. You see, heaven, heaven isn't just a place to long for, a place to look forward to, a place where we will someday worship. It is also a reason to worship now. It's a message so good that sometimes you're going to want to worship the messenger, as inappropriate as that is. But it's also our motivation to worship God now, to, to, to put God on the pedestal of life so he can reign as king over every decision we make and every breath we take to exalt him because of what he's done in Jesus and what he's doing in your life and what he will one day do again to make all things new. Worship God. And let me drive this home. They're just breaking down what it means to worship God into three categories. Three categories or ways that you can worship God today in light of what's coming tomorrow. First, worship God by living well. Now that may seem somewhat abstract. Yeah? Here's what I mean. Each of us every day is faced with innumerable decisions about how we're going to live life. Where we will spend our time, how we will spend our money, how we'll parent our kids, or what we're going to do to invite our neighbors over or not invite them over, what we're going to do in our community or retreating to renew ourselves. Innumerable decisions. And if God is as he's portrayed in this passage as one who reigns now and will reign forever, then we ought to live every moment, every decision for him. And every aspect of our lives ought to in some way be an act of worship 
whether we're enjoying what he's given us or working on his behalf. Every aspect, an act of worship as a display of our allegiance to Jesus. So an example of this, when we lived in Chicago, I had a good friend, a becoming a good friend. He wasn't at the time, but becoming. A guy named Tony, didn't know the Lord. Didn't know the Lord, but we, uh, we had kids the same age, and Catherine and his wife were very good friends, and I was looking to get closer to Tony. So what did we do? I asked myself, what can I do with Tony to give us time together without any distractions? Usually we're with the kids, we're starting to talk, the kids come in, we got to run off. So what can I do with Tony? I said, I got an idea. There's a golf course down the road, and I don't play golf. This will be perfect, and it was. We went out, and it was a nine-hole course, and it took us three and a half hours. <laughs> and I came back, and I had no balls, nothing left. But it was okay, because it gave us a ton of time to just walk the course, and we had several people sort of come around us and play on, and, and we kept on playing. And at some points, you know, you, you just lose the ball on purpose, and it was great. And Tony went from a guy who was openly hostile to the gospel to one who was open to it. And we created a lifelong friendship. Why? We decided, just thought, what is a way that I can build a relationship with Tony. Now, you've got somebody in your life. How did you do last week? How did you do? Asking somebody over, sharing a meal with them. You've got somebody in your life, and I'm not talking about the people you're sort of bound to. I got a brother-in-law that I'm sharing the gospel with, and he'll probably hear this at some point, and he'll be like, hey, that's me. And I know, yeah, that's you. And someday you're going to be in Eternity City with me, and that's great. I'm not talking about the people you're bound to. Who else in your life? Who has God situated you, right? Every act, every breath you take, every decision you make, an act of worship, an act of worship, live as a display of your allegiance to Christ. Live well. Where we eat lunch, parks we go to, the opportunities we take and make with our neighbors, the time that we spend teaching our children, we worship God by living well. Secondly, we worship God by suffering well. Now pain, pain is often in our world taken as the lens through which we see God or the possibility of God. And pain, if we read God through that lens, we come up with two questions. We question in our mind either his goodness or his ability. His goodness because he doesn't care enough to take the pain away. Or his ability to do it because maybe if he cares, he's not able to. But read in light of where we're going, if someday God's going to make it right again, and if we understand that we're the ones who made it wrong to begin with, then pain is no longer the lens through which you read life and decide to nix God, the only one able to fix it. Instead, pain and suffering is just another opportunity to worship God. It's just another opportunity. 
And the strange thing is, if seen through Jesus, if seen through Jesus, not only are you able to suffer or worship in spite of the suffering, you're actually enabled to run headlong into it for the sake of Christ. I ask myself all the times, all the time, what was it about the early church, the earliest Christians, what was it about them that enabled them to suffer so much better than we do? We can't do anything. They invited it. They looked for it. They took every opportunity to suffer for Jesus. And I think in no little way, it's because they had a massively more filled out picture of where they were headed. And so we can too. Live well, suffer well. Lastly, let me come back to where we ended last week. That's sort of the tie between these, these two sermons, the introduction. My hope for my life, what would be a hallmark of my life, and my hope for us as a church, is that we would worship God by witnessing well. If this picture of heaven, if this picture of heaven and the corresponding picture of hell is at all a glimpse into eternity, I'm sure we can't understand it all, but if it is at all a glimpse into where we are headed, the story of what God is doing ought to be on the tip of our tongues, both because it's our story and because it's not yet the story of those around us. We ought to never stop, never stop, never give up. People should be annoyed at you in the best of ways while playing golf. Now, let me just take a moment to recount this story of a guy named Penn Gillette. Do you know the name? Penn Gillette. He's a world-renowned comic illusionist and an avowed and very vocal atheist. But a book I was reading recently recounts his thoughts after being evangelized by what he describes as a polite and very impressive man. And this is what Gillette says. I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, you think that, well, it, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is more important than that, says Gillette. So if this is a picture of eternity, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, and a new Eden, as we 
live well and suffer well. We ought to at every point also witness well to the hope that we have because of Jesus. We, we do it when we live and we do it when we suffer, but we also do it in the way that we retell the story we found ourselves in. Because between paradise lost and paradise regained, paradise was won by Jesus on the cross. And nothing else will ever do the trick. I began with C.S. Lewis. Let me end there. For one who said that the Christians who have done the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next, you also said this. If you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get nothing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people aimed at heaven. But far from taking our eyes off this present world, I pray that it would only serve to spur us on in it. I pray that you would Make us just that, a people aimed at eternity. And with our eyes on what's to come, I pray it would lead us to worship today. To worship as we live well and as we suffer well and ultimately as we bear witness well of what we found in Jesus. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.